Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of The Gym's Cast with your host Joel Kleber. And on today's podcast we have a very special audio replay of The Gym's Ethos session which takes place every three weeks when we have new franchisee training. And the training is held at our head office out here in rural Bark, Victoria, Australia. It's a large uh, campus. It actually is an old university campus which is converted. And this talk happens in a big lecture theatre and it kicks off the start of the three-day generic training component. So everyone does the three-day generic component and breaks away for their own training. So if they're doing mowing, for example, they'll do an extra separate training, fencing, cleaning, etc. They go do their own one. So everyone is part of the gym's family, all your local experts who come to your property or whatever you use for service will do this three-day component. And this is the first two-hour session, which everyone does. It's a very inspiring talk. And I know that when Jim does business functions and all that sort of stuff, he does give a very similar talk. So, and he does get paid very well for that. But if you do come to training, this is the session that kicks off the first two hours. And you can also watch a video of this on our YouTube channel. So just search Jim's group and there'll be a Jim's ethos one there. Um, let us know if you like this podcast or not by giving us a review or five stars if you can, if possible on the iTunes store or wherever else you can rate podcasts. And um, we really do hope you enjoy it. And if you are thinking about doing training, please come along. And this is just an example of one of the sessions that you will experience when you're here. So until next time, happy listening. This morning, we're going to start the training by talking about what makes Jim special, what makes us different. We are a very different kind of organization, not just in our size, but in the way we operate. The first thing I'd like to say to you is something that most businesses would find quite extraordinary. In the past year, 2018, we knocked back more than 180,000 leads. 180,000 times plus. People rang up our call center or tried to book online and were told, sorry, we can't help you. This, this is about one lead in four. Now, can you imagine any other company, any business that could be in that situation? Can you imagine a supermarket like Woolworths knocking away, turning back one customer in four? Sorry, there's no room for you inside. Can you imagine petrol stations sort of rationing petrol and saying, sorry, you can't have any more petrol, we run out. It would be quite extraordinary, and that is a situation we're in. And this is a position that's been coming actually worse, steadily worse for several years. Even though we're growing, not as fast as we'd like, obviously the demand for our services is growing even more. And this is, you might say this is, well, this is obviously the point of, because of, um, you know, enormous advertising. Well, in fact, we take a set advertising from every franchise. It's about $140 per month. Um, some franchisors will actually overspend their budget, but an increasing pattern in recent years is that many franchisors can't spend their budget because there's just, there's just too much work. So, for example, there was one franchisor last year gave back several hundred thousand dollars to the franchisees, just said, here it is, guys, we can't spend it, we're flat out the year round. Extraordinary situation. So why is this the case? Okay, there's two things behind it, I believe. The first is that we are just incredibly well known because we have a massive advantage in terms of signage. We have more than 4,000 trailers and vans and so forth driving around the streets promoting our brand. People would kill for that. You know those, those things, there's this one out there, those signs where they, where they drag, drag them behind trailers? They spend a fortune for that. We get more than 4,000 people driving around promoting each of our brands. But the other reason 
is because we have an absolute passion for customer service and our complaint rate has been dropping for decades. Just to give you some idea how important that is, um, pre-franchise days when I had subcontractors, roughly speaking for every 100 leads we would take, we would at some stage pick up 100 complaints of some kind. Franchise system obviously better, we had better systems in place, we had selection systems, we had all kinds of things going on. When we started measuring complaints seriously after about the first decade, we found we were down 95%. So it's about 100 leads, five complaints. And then we started getting serious about complaints and started monitoring complaints and started following them up. And I'm gonna explain how this is going on later on this session. And the level of complaints just went down and down and down. Latest figures is three quarters of 1%. That's more than a 99% improvement. I believe with what we're doing now, my aim is over the next year, I'll have to set halved again. Because as we improve our customer service, as we give people a better experience, so we get more and more work. So the key, what I'm talking about this morning, is about customer service. What we expect and what we're going to ask of you. And this is a very, very tough system. I give you fair warning about this. Extremely tough. And it will press on you in various ways. So just be aware. Okay, let's start talking about what customer service is. When somebody contacts our office, still 70% ring, and 30% now online and rising all the time. When somebody rings our office, what is the absolute first thing that we need to do? First thing. Sorry? How? What do we need to do? Answer their call. Very smart. Okay. This is not trivial. This is not small. I recently tried a company called Flight Center. You heard about it? I thought I'd give it a go. And I tried to book in online. It had a problem apparently of some kind, and they said, okay, ring the call center. Ring the call center, 15 minutes on the phone, getting more and more exasperated, gave up. Next day, tried again, 15 minutes more, got through to somebody who told me there was probably some problem with the identity of my um, credit card details. Let me tell you, I will never, ever use that company again, ever. That cost them a customer for, forever. We have a call center down there which is by normal commercial standards grossly overmanned. Most of the time you will see people sitting there not answering calls. Other call centers do not do this. Our average time to take a call is eight seconds in that call center. Like 98% answer within one minute. Very, very, and that's after the compulsory um, message on hold that we need to give. What's the other peculiar thing about that call center there? It's very unusual. It's in Australia. It's in the wrong country, isn't it? Because that's not the cheapest way to, to answer calls. Everybody does it in overseas. Now, not decrying the, the job these people do, but the fact of the matter is local people, local accents, understanding and speaking, knowing local place names, and that matters a lot because if you're in, got a, taking a job in QCUE in Perth, and somebody sends you a job that's from Kew in Melbourne, you're not going to be too happy because you don't want to travel two hours by plane to get to the job, do you? 
So these things matter. It's not the cheapest way to do it, but it's very, very effective in terms of giving a good experience to our customers. Okay, next. The person on the phone is going to promise a call back. Does anybody know what the, what the maximum time allowed is? Two hours. Two hours. What is the ideal time? Somebody said 10 minutes, I'd say one minute. We had a wonderful, I got a wonderful call from a franchisee a few weeks back. Um, he said he used to make it a game to actually get on the phone so fast whenever that message came through. He, he played a game. His first month in business was making about the, um, over $4,000 a week and his conversion rate was in the 90% doing incredibly well, you know, wonderful franchise, a great, great customer service record too. Um, I cannot stress this too strongly, every second that you can take off that response time makes it more likely you will pick the job. We can actually put statistics on that. We did a study some years back and we actually looked at the conversion rate of leads to jobs. After two hours, less than half of the customers actually booked. After 10 minutes, but within the first one hour, that leaped to 78%. If you're delaying that callback, what you're saying is, look, I could be the one who wanted to go in there and just get the job, but I'm such a nice guy. My competitors are really struggling out there. Let's give them a chance to quote against me and go for the cheapest price. Generous, stupid, all right? Quicker you can get back, the more likely they aren't going to ring somebody else. What, else does it, what does it say about you when you call back so fast? You actually want the job. You're interested in the job. What does it say about your character, your, yourself? Efficient. You do what you say you will do. You're reliable. You, you make a promise, you'll keep it. And that's not too far from the truth, actually. If you're somebody who rings back very, very fast, on the whole, you'll give customers. And customers recognise that. You can, if you ring back really quickly, you'll often get a, wow, that was fast, that reaction. That's an immediate, positive, strong reaction. I cannot overemphasize how important the swiftness of that call is. There is a system for those who don't have noisy machines going where you can actually have the call transferred straight through, which is also very good if you can do that. So get that call back fast. What are we, what are we trying to do in... Um, by the way, this is very, very important. If you can't get through to the customer, what do you do? Message, yes, you will, but that's almost a waste of time because people almost never listen to voice messages. Sorry? Text. What you need to do is to text. The only exceptions are when they don't have a, a, a um, mobile phone number, which is very rare these days, then you actually can send an email or whatever you can do. You can do it on your phone. But it's very, very important text. If you text and the client complains about a lack of a response, which sometimes they will, believe it or not. You can phone them, you can text them, they'll still say you didn't call back. But if you send that to me, I'll personally delete any complaint or poor survey that results. If you don't do that, I won't do it. But more important, if you send the text through, and it's a simple message, it says, hi, this is uh, Bill here, rang to call about your, from Jim's, Jim's cleaning, um, tried to call you, please call me back on, so and so. Make sure that you tell them you've tried to call them and ask them to call you back. Don't just say that you're, you're please call me. Say, I tried to call you, please call me back. Now you can do this with a little message. You can actually put a, a, a like a, a, what do you call it, a code into your phone that goes something like PPP. 
So you text the client. It's a really, really simple thing to do. That will save you any amount of frustration if you just do that simple thing. So always send a text. Tell them you called. Ask them to call you back. And then try again later. Okay? Send an email too. Doesn't it? Do everything you can. So don't just phone them. Really try to get through. That little thing, that little trick, that little text will save you no end of, of trouble if you just get in the habit of doing that. Later down the track, we're going to have software developed so you can do that automatically, just a tap of your, on your phone and it'll send a text up. At the moment, we can't do that. Okay, so what are we trying to do in this conversation? What's our point? What are we after? We're trying to set up an appointment. Okay, so what we're going to do is to set up a time to go there. Very rarely do we give prices on the phone. It's not a great idea. Why, why is that? Yeah, if they can get it cheaper than somebody else, you do want to front them, for sure. It's also you don't know what's going to be up there. They can say that the grass is, is just normal and it's that high. I mean, people say extraordinary things over the phone. I guess when you're there, you've got the job. Well, what are you there doing? You've got, a, you've got a much better chance of getting the job if you actually go in person. Um, do not quote hourly rates. Why not? Why don't we quote hourly rates? Because they're too low. Because people have the idea that we're kind of labourers and we work for something like $25, $30 an hour. Um, I remember a client getting very upset at me because after I'd done the job, she said, you know, I char you charge more than my doctor. And I said, well, if, if, you ch if I took twice as long to do the, job, the same job, would you be happy? She said, yes. But she didn't like the fact that my hourly rate was so high. You, are, you should be aiming, I'm not saying initially when you don't know how to use the equipment and stuff, and you, you should be aiming at 60 bucks an hour, at least. And there are some franchisees who make multiples of that. But $60 an hour is where we're at. If you tell that to a client, they're not going to be too impressed. That's why we give quotes. Also, the other problem with giving hourly rates, and this applies at any level, is there's no certainty of what's to be done. If I say I'm going to do a job, I'm going to clean up your garden, the whole thing's going to be done, it's going to cost you $350, it's absolutely clear whether I've done it or not. But if I say I'm going to work for so much per hour, how much, how much am I supposed to have done? The client doesn't know. causes far more problems. So don't give hourly rates, give quotes. So you want to set up a quote. The way to do that is you must not give a precise time. Why not? They'll accept that precise time, and you know you can't give it. So at the very least, you need to give yourself two hours leeway. So it's not 10 o'clock, it's between 9 and 11. Don't say after 4, because after 4 to the client, you think it means between 4 and 6. They think it means between 4 and 5 past 4. It's between 4 and 6, okay? So no precise times. All these things I'm saying are because if you don't do them, you get into serious trouble down the track a bit. So you can either listen to me and do it now or learn from a hard experience of complaints and you know, clients being cancelled and all kinds of horrible things happening. Set yourself a time scale, at least two hours to get there. All right, now what have we got to do? What do we need to do now? Got to turn up, don't we? All right. We've got to turn up within that time. If we happen to not to be able to make the time, what do we do? Call the client. If you can't get through, text them. Let them know in plenty of time you're running late. So be there when they're expected. 
Now, strangely enough, and this is all based on statistics, even though it matters enormously when you actually bring the core client back, it's far less important when you actually do the job. You've made the appointment. Great to do it that day if you can. If it's the next day, not a big issue. As long as you call back promptly to do the job. You'd think it'd make a, a difference, but, but it doesn't. Okay, now, we've got to the job. We're parked outside. We're walking towards the front door. House, office, factory, who knows? What's impressing the client now? Presentation, appearance, uniform, very, very important. I won't do the exercise today, but one thing I often do is ask the ladies in the course, if you were faced with an operate, uh, a choice between two contractors, and I ask ladies because women are most of our clients and also they're more appearance conscious than we men are, and also more security conscious. And I, often, and I usually ask this question, there's two contractors very similar um, in presentation and, and appearance and manner and everything else, one with a uniform and one without, but the person with the uniform is charging 10% more. Something like 95% of people I've asked that would say, I'd choose the person with the uniform and I'd pay more. The average difference we find is around about 15%. So putting on a different coloured shirt in the morning so you can make an extra $15,000 per hour makes a difference, doesn't it? The uniform is very, very powerful, and particularly the gym's uniform. This particular brand here, which has my unlovely face on it, is very powerful as a source of security to the clients. It's a guarantee of who you are, so always be in uniform. Now, the interesting thing about what I've just said to you is this business about returning phone calls promptly, turning up when you say you will and being in uniform is actually most of customer service. Most of the issues we have are with those areas, those particular things there. And the interesting thing about that is that it's incredibly simple. My nine-year-old son about to turn 10 would have no problem with any of that. No problem with understanding he's got a phone, he knows returning phone calls, he knows how to make appointments, he knows how to get dressed in uniform in the morning. And yet businesses, there are hundreds and hundreds of franchisees over the years have failed in business because they don't do what a nine-year-old can do. And that is so, so tragic. That is so hurtful that people come and invest in a business, put your, your, your borrow against your house, you invest your energy and you invest your time and you don't do what a nine-year-old can do and you fail as a result. But it's that simple. Okay, when you actually get to speak to the client, we're now getting past what a nine-year-old could do. And this is to do with how you present to the client, how you talk to the client. Now, most of you are probably going to be fairly good at that. Generally speaking, people who want to buy a franchise tend to come from the middle to the upper level because you're of the employment market because you're, most of you had some experience dealing with the customers, with the public in some way. Many of you have been in responsible positions, you've been in leadership positions, administration, leadership, sales maybe. So most of you are going to be really effect, reasonably effective communicators. We're going to give you a few hints over the next few days as to how to do that better. But basically what we're going to do is to 
find out from the client exactly what they want done. And now, very importantly, we give them a clear written quote. Why do we give a, a written quote? Why is it so important to write it down? Why don't we just say, oh, it's going to be so-and-so to clean to mow your lawns or clean your house or wash your windows or wash the dog? Why do we give it in writing? Hmm? It's very clear. It tells exactly what you want. Because let me tell you something. When two people have a conversation with the best will in the world, they can very misremember what was said. It's so easy to misunderstand. It's so easy to not remember. It doesn't mean to say one party's lying. Sometimes they are, but usually it's just people misunderstanding things. They do it differently. If you don't write a clear written quote, you can come at the end of a job and you finish the job, what you understand it, and the client thinks something else needs to be done. What do you think is going to happen then? Sorry? Well, you are, you might not get paid for it, or more likely you'll simply do whatever the client says. Because if it comes to us, that's what we'll tell you. If you have a disagreement with a client about what needs to be done and the client wants a whole lot more done than you thought was to be done, the first thing we're going to ask you is, where is your quote? And if you say, well, I didn't write one, you will do whatever the client says needs to be done or you will do without the money. Does that make sense? Now, that is a pretty harsh sort of statement. And franchisees get very upset about this because they say, hey, I've been a franchise of yours for five years. You don't know this customer, anybody. You're believing their word over mine. How, how fair is that? Well, in a way it isn't. But the fact of the matter is you've been told to give a written quote and you didn't give it. And that's a mistake. And if you do make that mistake, I hope it's only once because you learn from it because it's very, very expensive. I mean, just to give you little examples of that, somebody says, how much to clear that up, waving their hand over a garden bed. Real story, franchisee gives a price, does the garden bed, comes back for the money, and the client says, what about the rest of the backyard? What does the franchisee do? Rest of the backyard. Many, many such examples. So always give a clear written quote, and that, that's your defence. And then if somebody says, well, I expected this, we'll say yes. But here's the quote, and this is what's included in it and it's completely unambiguous as to what's to be done. All right. Even the way you write the quote can be important. My brother-in-law had a, one of some trees taken down from his yard and he got two name companies to do it because they were near the house. He didn't want a backyard. He wanted a reputable non-name company. And he had two quotes. And it was a fair-sized job, so quotes from both were just over $1,000 they were both within $10 of each other. Now, when you're spending over $1,000, $10 doesn't matter, does it? So effectively, they were equal quotes. How did you decide? It's on the kitchen table. One was an A4 sheet from a company called Complete Garden Care with letterhead, so much with stumps, so much without, there's the price. The other one, the guy originally gave him a verbal quote. Oh, mate, it'll be so-and-so, like that. He said, could you write it down? He wrote it on the back of a business card. That business card cost this Tumes Trees franchisee a $1,000 job, though he didn't actually know it. I just found it afterwards why he used them. 
Okay, so a proper, clear written quote on proper letterhead impresses clients. Now, bear in mind that we have done everything, everything so far to make the client happy, haven't we? When they call, we answer the phone very fast with a recognisable voice, accent, good communication skills. We make a promise that you're going to return the phone call. You call back, ideally within seconds of getting that lead, and you call them back. You turn up when you say you were within that two-hour limit. You dress, you look the part, you communicate well. You give them a clear written quote. Everything that you've done is designed to make the client want to use us. But there's now one thing that we're going to do that could potentially possibly have the opposite effect, that could put the client off. And it's the only thing we ever do that could put the client off. What's that? Asking how they're going to pay for it. This is, this is at the stage of giving them the quote. Sorry? We've got to put a good price on it. I wouldn't say it's overpricing. I'd say it's a good price. And that's the point about what I'm saying to you. There is a school of thought that says, and we call it cheapest chips, there's actually a company that's done this kind of stuff. They go around, advertise real cheap prices, go in, rush the job, get to the next one, cheap, 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 cheap. That is the opposite to what we do in gyms. We are there to give fantastic service, to bowl the clients over with service, but we are not there to be cheap. We actually want you to charge more than your competition. We do not want you to compete on price. If you do what I'm describing to you, call back very fast, turn up properly, you will generally not compete on price. Now by charging, I don't mean charging three times what the opposition does, but there's absolutely no reason why you can't charge 10 or 20% more, particularly when you start to get busier. There was a discussion on the Franchises Forum many years back. There was a new guy went into a country town, this is lawn mowing, and wanted to know what to charge. And there was a few franchisees responded to him, and they gave the same answer. They said, find out what the opposition is charging and add 10%. That's the gym's extra that you can charge simply by wearing this, this logo, add 10%. And that's their recommendation. Other people would say it's more than that, but that's what they said at that time. By the way, your average fees will be around about 8% of your turnover. Um, could be anything from... 1% up to who knows, depending on how well you're doing. But the average we think is around about 8% of turnover. So that actual gym's advantage, being able to charge more for this brand, actually covers everything that you'll ever pay us in ongoing fees. So we're not cheap as chips, we charge well. When anybody comes to me, I mentioned before the $60 per hour figure. I'm not saying you'll make that right from the first day because you need to learn how to do the job, but that's what you're going to be aiming for. And you can't do that if you're going to be cheap. Okay, now I've been talking for nearly half an hour. We haven't got to the job. And you might think that's pretty strange because obviously the job is the key. Well, well doing the job well matters. But surprisingly enough, it's not where most complaints come from. By the way, another major source of complaints is when you're going to give a quote, not getting back with a quote. That's an increasingly common. 
less and less now these days because of these systems that people not ring the client, but not getting back with the quotas are very, very common. I actually go through most complaints every day personally and check them online to see what's going on. All the surveys, I looked at all the low-rated surveys and checked the complaints and I see this again and again. So if you're going to give a quote, obviously needs to say you give it quickly, but also if you email the quote, what do you need to do? Follow it up. Phone the client if you possibly can. Um, if you can't phone them, then you send a text message to let them know that you've sent the quote. Phoning a, phoning a client, is, follow up a quote, is, is good from a number of points of view. First of all, it ensures they get it because so many quotes go to junk mail these days. But it's also a very good way of potentially landing the job. You say, look, Mrs. Jones, did, did you get the quote I just sent you? Um, were there any questions about it? All right, that's a very good reason for you to call them. And then on the spot, you're through, the quote's sitting in front of them, how easy it is it just to, to book the job through. So make a follow-up phone call. If you can't get through, send a text message to their mobile phone to make sure they got it. If, they, if, they, if you don't do that and they miss it, you, you'll bag the complaint because you should have followed up with a text. These are simple things, but they will have a big, big impact on how successful your business is. It's not just the fact that if you don't do these things, you'll get a complaint or a poor survey, but it does mean to say you're much less likely to get the job. And after all the trouble you've, got, you've gone to, you might as well actually get the job, might you, for the sake of a phone call. So follow up. Okay, now we get into the job itself. What do we need to achieve from that job, apart from getting paid, of course, which goes without saying? What must we achieve? What are we aiming for? Sorry? Customer satisfaction. I probably said this, but that's the answer I want. We need to satisfy that customer. That is the only thing that basically matters. The aim of doing the job is not to do what we consider an adequate job. That is completely irrelevant. It's what the customer considers an adequate job. And I get this discussion many times with franchisees. So look, I did everything I thought I should. I'm satisfied with it. The customer's not satisfied. Now that may be you didn't communicate it. Maybe whatever reason there is, we need to satisfy that customer. And the important thing to recognise about customers is their expectations can vary very widely. When I was mowing lawns, some customers just wanted the place hacked down. That's all they wanted, and some wanted like a bowling green, which is a bit strange when it's that high to start with. But still, different expectations of customers. Where do we need to go? Somewhat there, somewhat there. Where do we need to be? Up here, don't we? At the very least, we have to meet the maximum the customer wants. Many years ago, one of my franchisees said to me something. He said, Jim, you know, I really hate Jewish customers. And I said, why do you hate Jewish customers? And he said, they're so fussy, they're so picky, they're so hard to please. And I said, you know something? I used to do a lot of Jewish customers in the area where I started working around the North Baldwin area because there was a synagogue nearby. And I said, I loved my Jewish customers. He said, why? I said, because they're so fussy, they're so picky, 
they're so hard to please that if you look after them well, they're the best customers in the world and they're a fool to their friends and they'll give you great ongoing jobs and extras. It's going to be wonderful Christmas presents like coats and things because a lot of them have businesses. I love my Jewish customers because my standards were up there where they wanted me to be. And, and, they're, and they're, the, they're the best clients that you can, you can have. So we need to satisfy our customers. But even that's not enough, is it? What do we really, really want to achieve? Repeat business, which will come out of what? What do you want from a client when you've finished a job? Recommendations. Recommendations, which will come out of what? Wow! Okay. We need to surprise them. We need to shock them. We need to say, wow, this is better than I... We need to exceed their expectations. Okay? Simple, simple ways to do that. I've already mentioned one, which is really, really good. The customer's promise, being promised two hours. You ring back in 15 seconds. What have you got? Wow. People will say that to you. They'll say, that was fast. You've immediately shocked them. The little extra things that you can do to make a client really delighted. Great story. Years ago, a franchisee was ringing me to complain about a client. This is a cleaning franchisee. And the story was this. When he is a very, he's a very, very good franchisee, really good franchisee, great record. And he just likes things to be tidy and neat. And he had this habit when he went to this particular client's house that when he went to the bedroom to finish the bedroom, he would straighten the bed and put these little throw cushions on the bed. And one day he was running a bit quiet and he, a bit, bit, um, bit behind time, and he didn't put the throw cushions on the bed. And he said, you know what, Jim? This client rang me and complained about it. And that's ridiculous. What an incredibly thing to, to do. First of all, I didn't quote on the job. It's not part of a cleaning. And it took me all of 15 seconds to put the throw cushions on the bed, but they rang up to complain that I hadn't done it. He said, customers are so unreasonable. And I said, well, that's the wrong lesson to draw from this. You did something, your own estimate. That's what he said to me. 15 seconds, so important to the client that they would ring you and complain you hadn't done it. What does that say about the importance of that particular job to the client? Wow, it matters so much. So what I would say to you is when you do the job, look for the throw cushions, the little things that make the job superb, the little things that surprise them, that amaze them, the little, the finish on the job that nobody else can achieve. If you can amaze the client, that will get you the referrals, that will get you the repeat work, that will get you the extras, that will get you everything else. Look for the throw cushions on every job that you do. The little thing that gets them really happy. And as I said, the easiest thing of all is the swiftness of your callback. Make that a competition, make that a game. How quickly can you do it? You will be amazed how much difference these little things make. Um, I hope that, um, has it, has it, that anybody who's not here hasn't read this, will actually get Sorry. A copy of this book here. If you haven't read, 
I hope you'll grab a copy and if you like I'll even sign it for you before you go. What that does is talk about how I started off and how this got going from very unpromising situations. Mowing lawns was my student job. I had no concept. I wanted to be an academic in those days. That was my aim in life, which I'm actually very pleased that I failed at because having seen the life that academics leave, it's not a great one. But You look at my career starting from having no business experience and no money. In fact, when I started my full-time business, I was, uh, had $24 capital and I was about $30,000 in debt. I was in a really, really bad situation, far worse than anybody here could possibly be. If you were that bad, you couldn't, you couldn't be able to get a franchise. Nobody would lend you the money. Um, and from that, I built to what we've got now, which is the largest franchise chain in the Southern Hemisphere, at least in terms of numbers, in terms of turnover. Um, one of the things that I had going for me, what, though, and I, and I really made so many stupid mistakes, many of which are described in this book, but one of the things I had was an absolute fanatical interest in customer service. I had this, this aim, always from the beginning, I wanted to wow my clients, I wanted to amaze them. And um, I was, in fact, one of the first contractors in Australia to own a brush cutter. This is back in the 70s, and they're pretty, everybody knows about them now. But back then, nobody had heard about them. I just got a lawnmower, and I was going out there. But when I was mowing lawns, one of the things that used to bug me was edges. Now, I had a, a wheel, spoked wheel edger. So I'd go along the, the mower strip, and I'd cut with the wheel edger. And then I'd, I'd run the left-hand wheel of the lawnmower on the concrete because rotary mowers um, suck from the left because they cut clockwise, and that cleaned it up very nicely. But the edges that I couldn't do were the ones around the trees and around the, uh, retain along the retaining walls, that little furry bit of glass. You, just, you couldn't do it. It would take you like half an hour with a pair of shears. And nobody did it, and nobody expected it. But one day, I was in the mower shop, and this old guy, Tom, used to run it. That, that he'd been in this business for decades. And he, I was one of his best customers, because as he, as he said to me once, he said, you know, Jim, you look after your, your, your customers better and your equipment worse than any, equip, than any contractor I know. I was actually, I went into this, his shop once with a problem with a mower that he had never in all his years as a, fixing mowers he'd ever seen. One of the front wheels of the mower was stoved in like that. And he just looked at me, he'd seen all kinds of stuff that I bought, and he looked at me and said, he said, Jim, how could you possibly do that to a lawnmower? And I said, well, it actually wasn't mowing lawns. I was driving on the road, and I neglected to fasten the tailgate of the trailer, and the mower fell out on the road, and that's how it got bent. The second time I went in like that, he looked at me very seriously. He said, Jim, remind me never to drive behind you on the road. So I wasn't great with my mowers, which is a mistake, and I should have been, I should have done a lot better. But um, I went in with this mower with one particular day, this little shop in Eltham where I was living at the time, and he, because I was a good customer, he would pick it up and start to have a look at it. And while he was doing that, I wandered around the shop. And in the corner, I saw this funny-looking gadget. It's a long pole, <coughs> handle in the middle, little engine on one end, and on the end, there was this funny-looking plastic thing with a bit of white cord sticking out. I had no idea what that was. And I said, Tom, what is it? 
He said, it's a brush cutter. I said, what? He said, it's a new idea, just out from Japan. It's one of the first in the country. The company called Shikatani made them, only one at that time. So I said, what does it do? So he, he showed me, he picked it up. He said, you take it here, you pull this little thing there, and that little whizzy cord is nylon, comes around and whips the grass that doesn't kill, doesn't bring back the trees and so forth. I looked at it, and, I, and in, I had in my mind you know, this, this frustration about these edges that I couldn't do. So I said, how much is it? You know, I've got to have this thing. They gave me a price, and it was, oh, wow, it's a big price for that little thing there. Said, well, don't blame me, there's, one, you know, there's no other choice. But I bought it on the spot, didn't have a lot of money, but I had to have that thing. And then I went out, and I wasn't great at using it and the beginning, but I pick, quickly picked up the knack because I was using it a lot, and I could use it in a way that no client could do it for themselves and I would do edges that were absolutely perfect. Eventually I even got enough control so I could do the, the concrete, just a little um, groove down there. So I'd do that and I'd cut around all the trees and the training walls and, and as I'd leave the, the brush cutter going, I'd do the nature strip, the front and the back and as I was coming down the driveway I'd zip the grass from the cracks in the driveway and blow them off afterwards. I could do a job for my clients that they couldn't do for themselves. And I can vividly remember clients saying to me, I never knew my lawn could look this good. And I just picked up customer after customer after customer because they were absolutely meticulous. And people would actually say, my franchisees would say, actually this is pre-franchise, my contractors would say, they'd know when I'd done a lawn because the edges were absolutely perfect. And I had just this, this, this absolute perfectionism about a job. You know, if I would walk out of the front yard, and I would see a little ball of grass. You know when grass gets wet, a little ball comes like that? I would walk across the other side of the yard and pick it up and throw it away. I remember doing that. And I had to make that job perfect. Now that, that fanaticism, that obsession, really was the key to everything. Because it made it possible for me to build my client base and I could boot up and sell off clients to start on the long road to franchising. And it came from that meticulousness. That is what you need to have. Not good enough to satisfy the client, but good enough to satisfy you because your standards are much higher than almost any client. And if you can achieve that and learn to do it time efficiently, which is why using it with the brush cutter is important as opposed to, to trying to do it with a pair of shears, if you can do that, you will have an absolutely brilliant business. Okay, what if something goes wrong? What if the customer isn't happy? And by the way, you shouldn't have to get the client's opinion for this. I know I, I speak to clients, franchisees sometime, and there was a complaint about a job, and, the, and the, this is a cleaning job, and the, and the franchisee was saying to me, well, you know, I checked with the client at the end and they were happy. But I said, well, they're not happy, clearly, because they've just, you know, given you a really bad survey. And I said, they'll often say different things to your face, but... He said, well, what, how, can I, how can I tell if, if the customer says they're happy? And I said, well, you shouldn't need that to happen. You should have such a high standard that you know that if I was going to ask a client to have a look at my job, I didn't do it to find out whether they were happy. I knew they'd be delighted. I just wanted them to admire what I'd done, be, be aware of it. Okay, I never need a client to tell me I've done a good job because my own standards are high enough that if they, they meet my standards, every customer's going to be happy and most will be delighted. So you've got to have that internal standard. Now, if the customer is not happy, what do we do? Can I ask 
yeah, make them happy. There's a simple answer to that. The whole purpose of customer service is to make customers happy. It's not to, not to, some, to abide by the manual. It's not to live up to the procedures that you think good enough. It's to delight that customer. That is what we're about. And that is the lesson. If you do anything or say anything or say in any way that the customer is not happy, then something's wrong. If it's your manner, if it's anything at all, the customer's not happy. You need to make that customer happy. And we had the situation too that if you do have a problem and you go back and fix the problem, we will delete the complaint. Even though there was a complaint in the first place, if you can go and fix it, that's always the lesson no matter what happens. Satisfy the customer. The only time you don't satisfy the customer is if the customer says, well, I expected so-and-so to be done. And you say, well, look, I'm sorry, but you know, in the quote that I gave, it was this. And you've got a clear written quote explaining what you're going to do. You say, I'm happy to do that for you, no problem at all, but it'll be an extra whatever. So that's how you add that to the quote. That's how you do it. Otherwise, we satisfy the customer. Just fix whatever's necessary. In very rare situations, Obviously, only when there's a fairly big involved, there's a disagreement about what is to be done, or what needs to be done to fix this issue. And we're talking about major problems. Um, you think the job is done right, the customer is not satisfied. What we then do is get your franchisor involved. Your franchisor will inspect the job and will give an opinion as to whether it's good or not. If there's any issues with that job, the franchisor thinks there's any issues, you will simply fix that. If you don't fix it, somebody else will fix it and you will be billed for it. In very, very rare situations, the, the, the franchisor will agree with the franchisee and disagree with the client. Um, this is usually because the franchisee and the franchisor are the same person, I might say. Um, in that case, there is one further avenue. We invite an independent expert to come and have a look, with both parties agreeing in writing that they will abide by whatever this expert says. And the understanding is this, if there's anything that we haven't done that we should have done, we will fix it, and then we'll pay the expert. But if the expert says there is no issue, that a client has to agree in writing to pay the expert. This is a good avenue to follow when the client is being obviously trying to rip us off, which does happen at times. And then we will absolutely support it. If the customer says, no, I won't agree to that, we wash our hands of it. And this, this can happen. But very, very rare, and you'll probably never have it happen to you. But the independent expert is the way to go. Every time we've had an expert, by the way, we've always found a problem. But it is good, because if the customer doesn't agree, if they know that they're trying to you know, take a rise out of you, well then you can, you can wash their hands off them. The customer isn't always right. I know people say that, but it's, it's absolutely not true. Sometimes the customer is wrong. But there's only very limited ways that we deal with that. We will go an enormous way to do with a customer. If a franchisee has left, by the way, we'll still fix the problem. We, had a, we, we fixed up a fence once which cost $120,000. We, we paid for it, and it's paid for out of the warranty fund, which is a small amount of money that you will pay, usually about $102,000 when you sign that contract. It goes into a fund, and that covers anything like that. So we will always fix customer issues, no matter, no matter what they are. Customer service matters. It matters a great deal. It matters a great deal to Jim's group. It is the driver that makes us successful. If we're we are good at keeping you busy, and we are, generally speaking, we are very good at that. It is because our standards are so high. 
It also matters a great deal to you in all kinds of different ways. Um, for example, we have looked at the star ratings of franchisees who, who leave in the first year. Now, not everybody who leaves in the first year it does so because their business fails. But it's fair to say that there's more likelihood that you'll leave if you're not making a lot of money. We found the star rating of franchisees who leave in the first year on average is dramatically lower than those who, those who last beyond the first year. It's something like 4.1 as opposed to 4.6 out of five, potential five. So people who give poorer service are far more likely to fail financially. Um, we did a survey once. We, we do a, um, we survey our customers, I'll talk more about that later, but we also survey our franchisees. And while the franchisee survey findings are confidential, the franchise doesn't know, we use them statistically. One of the questions we ask in the franchisee survey is, what's your income like? Now we don't ask the amount, what we want to know is your income is good, satisfactory or poor. Now obviously what we don't like is for you to say poor because we're not doing our job very well in some way. Around about 10% of franchisees on average report poor income. It's about, and about, it's about 45% good, 45% okay, and about 10% poor. But that, yes? that's in an area sort of thing or just kind of spread everywhere? Um, it depends more on the division actually than anything else. You'll find some divisions like um, mowing tends to have a much lower poor rate. Other white collar ones like um, computer services tend to be higher because yeah. it's hard to find work. Yeah. Geographically, no, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, now, interesting thing about that 10% is it's not evenly spread. One of the exercises we did one time was we divided our franchisees into four groups based on the level of customer service from really, really good down to, you know, got some problems down there. Of the franchisees who were in the bottom quarter, 25% um, reported poor income. Those in the top quarter, it was 3%. So there's a big, big difference. Now, being in the top quarter doesn't mean that you'll never run short of income. There was 3% who said they were, because you know you can be just starting the business, all kinds of reasons, things can go wrong, you're going to have health issues, who knows? But you're, you're only a fraction as likely to report poor income if you're giving very, very good customer service. So from all points of view, it's, it's the better your service, the better your income is likely to be. So that's what customer service is. Now I'm going to talk about the really hard part, which is how we make it happen. And that is the challenge because, you see, when I was out there mowing lawns by myself, I gave great service, I really did. I was extremely reliable. I think only in my whole 15 years I can ever remember letting a customer down because I, I made a mistake with my diary in one way. I just didn't do it. I mean, there were just no complaints about my jobs that I can remember. Once I actually I mowed somebody's lawn and I knocked off a couple of sprinkler heads, that's the only I can remember about quality of work because I was so meticulous. So when you're one person, you can do that. We've got nearly 4,000 franchisees. It gets a lot harder at this level. So what do we do to maintain the level of customer service? And not just maintain it, but actually improve it steadily. As, as I said at the beginning, over the years, our levels of complaints have dropped dramatically and regularly, and they're still going down. 
Even a year ago, it was about, a year and a half ago, it was about 1%. Now it's three quarters of 1%. Actually going down all the time. What would anybody like to guess? Now, this is a real hard one. I won't blame you if you're getting this one. But what is the number one most important thing that we do to drive customer service? It's a hard question. If you get this right, you'll be, you'll be pretty clever. Choose good people. Okay? Fundamentally, if you are the kind of person that wants to give great service because it reflects your own integrity and your own pride and your own sense of, of professionalism and perfection, you'll tend to do well, regardless of anything that we can say. If we choose good people, then we, we are very likely you're to be successful in that area. That's the number one thing. It comes internally. Right? That's number one. We train. This course here, it's not a coincidence that in this course here, which is the generic done, course done by every potential franchisee, the first person you hear from is the founder of the business talking of what you probably already think is an ordinate length about customer service. And I haven't finished yet. And we will continue to talk customer service during this course. You will get more of it during the course. You'll get more of it on my talk on Wednesday afternoon about making money. You'll get ongoing. You'll be in the newsletters. You'll be at the meetings. Your French jaws will talk about it. We're going to be talking about customer service a lot. <coughs> We're going to, even our fee structure is designed to drive customer service. And we do this in a very unique way, which is something that we invented myself. In fact, I invented it, so I can, I can claim credit for that one. Most, does anybody know how most franchise systems charge fees? Like McDonald's and Hungry Jackson knows. Does anybody know how that, they do that? That's right, percentage of turnover. That's what they take. So whenever you go into a place and you order the Big Mac and the fries, they'll put these little coloured um, buttons on the cash register. And that'll go straight through to the head office and they take a percentage off the top. That's how that works. Now, there are businesses in the service franchise industry that do this. Two that I know of are James's, which is the Queensland-based uh, business, and Johnny King, which is an American cleaning franchise. They both take 15%. And I just recently heard another one does the same thing. So take 15% of your turnover. Um, on the whole, that's not very common. One reason being that it's very hard to administer. Unlike the electronic cash registers, it's very difficult to know what a person is doing with a, you know, in, in, their actual, in a job when they're out in the field because there's an awful lot of cash involved and extra customers. And, and to a certain extent, you know, you can sort of understand it. Like if I was to give you a $1,000 job and take 150 bucks, you'd probably say, fair enough, you know, you gave me the lead. But what if you pick up a 1000 bucks job from a referral? Why would you give me 150 bucks? What have I done? It's all your effort, isn't it? So for that reason, what most service franchises, at least in Australia, do is charge a flat rate fee, which is the same every month. Very predictable income to the franchise or predictable cost to the franchisee. So that's not a bad idea. But we added fairly early on a little wrinkle to this. So instead of having a flat rate fee there, we have a flat rate fee, which is a bit lower. We, we dropped it a bit. And then we put a small fee for every lead provided. Can anybody think why we do that? Why don't we just charge a higher flat fee? 
Sometimes franchises get annoyed about lead fees. They say, oh, Jim, I know why you charge because you want more money. I said, yes, but you forget we write the contracts. We could write the flat fee whenever we wanted to. Why do we write it so that on average, most of the fee is still the flat fee, but we put a small fee for every lead? Why would we do that? Exactly right. If you pay for it, you value it, you're more likely to chase it up. And we did an experiment when we first were trying these things out, because we tried a few different things in the beginning. And we had two groups of franchisees. Some who were, this was in the very new clean division in those days. Some who were paying a flat fee, and some who were paying a flat fee plus lead fee. And it's important they were both paying on average about the same fees. But then we rang the clients to see what happened. And there was a big difference. Because when we rang the clients with the flat fee, 25% of the clients said no response, didn't get back to me. When we rang the clients from the franchisees on the, with the lead fees, 3% said no response. In other words, they were eight times more likely not to, not to contact the client when there was no lead fee involved. And what was really interesting too, when we actually looked at the conversion rate, because we asked the client whether they got the job done, the franchisees who were on lead fees, 75% um, had the job done, with those on flat fees less than half. So if you think about it, by simply changing the way we charge fees, we were able to reduce the unhappy clients to one-eighth as many, and, this is very important, we got 50% more work from the same volume of leads. Can you see the benefit of that? Because it's actually, you gain immediately from having more work, but you also gain because of reputation down the track of it. So lead fees are actually incredibly powerful ways of driving work to our franchisees because they encourage you to follow up the lead. And it's like the little phone call, a little text that you send. You spend a minute by spending that minute to send the text, you reduce the chance of blowing that lead fee, which could be 10 bucks or whatever it happens to be. But it's still pretty good value, isn't it? So that's why we use lead fees. So lead fees are, well, you can see the sense of them, can't you? I mean, they are obviously very effective. There's probably, there's not much that causes more aggravation and upset than lead fees, though, at times. Why? Why would people get upset about lead fees? So if I was to give Jamie here a job that's worth, what, what business are you in? You're in dog wash? Okay, I'll give you a, a, a grooming job and let's say it's worth 60 bucks. You'd be pretty happy with that, wouldn't you? You paid an eight bottle lead fee, I think it is, for dog wash. Um, but you might say, might be that client for regular. They might be washing their dog every, every month for the next five years. That's a pretty good thing, isn't it? So you would be happy about that lead fee, wouldn't you? So why wouldn't you be happy to pay a lead fee? If you didn't convert that customer. Yeah, you didn't get the customer. What, what if you can't get the customer? What if they change their mind? What if they get somebody else to do it? You ring back in half an hour, they've already got somebody else coming out. So what you do, if you don't know what you do, you, you, how the system works, is you ring back and say, hey, I didn't get that customer, take, please take off the lead fee. What are we going to say? No, we're not going to. First of all, why did you wait half an hour? Why didn't you come back within one minute? Because if you'd done that, the other person probably wouldn't have got in. But sometimes you can't get the, the job. Some customers are completely unreasonable. There is a fraction of clients that just no matter what you do, no matter how well you do it, 
you will not get that job. Some jobs are impossible to land. We recognise that. Most systems we actually knock off 15% automatically for the impossible to get clients. But in fact, we don't even want you to get 100% of your leads, do we? Why? If you're getting 100% of your leads turning to jobs, what are you doing wrong? You're too cheap. You should be losing leads. You should have people knocking you back on price. Not most of them, but some of them should knock you back or you are too cheap. And I can remember vividly when I first started mowing lawns full-time, this is back in 1982, when I was flat broke, I can vividly remember in that first month, not one client knocked me back on price. I remember people used to give me an extra money, like give me 20 bucks for the job. And I got this several times. Now, I was really proud of that. Looking back, I think, you know, <laughs> what was I doing wrong? I was too cheap. I probably could have charged an extra 20%, which, believe me, would have made a lot of difference back in those days. I just didn't understand the principle that I was doing. Um, so, a lead is a lead is a lead. There are very limited situations where you will take, we will take a lead fee. Now, one example is if it's the wrong suburb, if it's the wrong city, for example. There's made a mistake at the course and it occasionally happens. By the way, you get a lot more mistakes in phone numbers and so forth when people book online. It's far more likely for a client to get their own phone number wrong than the girl at the office to get it wrong when she puts it into the computer. Um, so sometimes there's a complete mistake or it's a completely wrong job. It's just for the completely wrong division, something like that. Or the address is totally, the address is wrong, phone number's wrong, and we check on it. So there are very limited situations. But the fact that you didn't get the job, no matter how, there's other, otherwise, <coughs> no, basically, leafy doesn't come off. And that does cause aggravation. And I probably, on average, at least once a week, will write a little essay to a franchisee complaining about lead fees not being taken off. And I'll explain why. The whole problem with taking lead fees off when you don't get them is that it removes the incentive, which is the whole point of lead fees in the first place. Do you understand that? It's one of the ways that the system can hurt at times. It can sting. Please be aware of that. It's what makes it work. If it doesn't have any pressure, if we simply take it off, then it has no, in fact, no importance. We might as well charge a flat fee like the competitors. But that will cost us very dearly. See, one of the interesting things about the lead fee is this. If somebody doesn't take a lead fee because they don't want to pay, that doesn't want to take a lead because they don't want to pay a lead fee, um, what that means is they're busy. They say, oh, look, rather than you know, be charged a lead fee for a job that I don't really need, I'll ring up the call centre and I'll tell them not to send it to me because that's worth it. I can spend a minute on the phone and save myself 10 bucks from a lead I don't need. But the great thing about that is the lead then goes to the next person in the line who says, wow, that's just what I needed. So it actually directs the lead to the person that really wanted. The challenge with lead fees, set them in a way that makes it, it gives you an incentive to not take jobs you don't want at the same time, we don't want it to be so high, it discourages you from taking the work that you do want, which is why we don't charge all of our fees as lead fee, because if you did, like we would not take work. So there's a, there's a balancing act in there. Okay, what else do we do to drive customer service? We have a system which is based on the idea that you will tell us exactly what job you want, where you want it, when you want it the kind of job, the place, the time. 
and we'll show you during this training session how to do that. You can set it up through a system called Gyms Online or you can ring up the call centre and they'll do it for you. The importance of this is that we want to give you exactly what you're after. We might have 10 franchisees covering an area. Nine might be so busy they don't want extra work and one needs the job. We need to be able to direct that job to that one person who can take it. And actually, sometimes you can have more than 10. Sometimes you can have 20 or 25 franchisees covering an area. And most of them don't want the work, but we want to pick the one to do. We put a massive investment. We spend close to $2 million a year on IT development in gyms. There's a massive ongoing program. This particular thing about putting people down for work was actually, um, in the beginning, it was so labour intensive it used to swallow up basically all of our franchise fees. I was actually running at a loss in the early days before we computerised because it's so expensive to do. Nowadays it's all automated, it's just all the flick of a button and you put the job in and it'll automatically pick the right person, do all kinds of things like that. But this, this system which asks you what you want is actually one of the main reasons why um, our customer service can be as good as it is. Because if you think about it, I mean, the Australian tradesmen are notorious for bad service. Is that right? If you think about it, I mean, has anybody here never been let down by a tradie? Never had a tradie fail to turn up? You know, I've asked that question many times. And, and only one time, twice, did I ever have anybody put up their hand and said, never been let down by a tradie. And in both cases, they never called one, okay? One guy said he did it himself, the other guy said his father did it. But everybody has that experience. But in a sense, it's not really their fault because they don't control the inflow of work. So one work you might have nothing on, and you'll, you'll you know, avidly take anything available. Next week, you're flat out. Well, if somebody rings up like that, an answering service says he'll call you back. Well, they won't call you back because he's too busy. But you can't shut off the advertising, can you? Because it just keeps on coming in. And then even if you do take the job, you know you're, you're overbooked the day just in case something cancels and you don't, don't get to half the job. If you say no to the customer, you've lost them forever anyway. So there's no, there's no value in saying no to the customer. So there's a lot of... In, when you're looking at an independent trader, there's a lot of reasons why they would let you down because they can't control the inflow of work. But you can. And that's the big difference. So you, got, you tell us exactly what you want. So if, if you say... Um, I'll pick on... So the pass here, or roller doors. Okay, so if the pass says is a roller door, I'm happy to do a roller door, I'm down for work, I cover this suburb, I'm happy to take work at this particular time of day. If a job comes into that suburb at that time of day for roller doors, we're going to pass it to you knowing that you're going to take it. Is that right? So it, it's simple. And there's no reason why you wouldn't. Because if you were sick or you were overly busy, you'd have told us not to give it to you. Now the job may go on service, that's not your problem but at least we don't let the client down by promising service that we don't achieve. Well, we still do it, but not, not as often. So that system of being able to give work to the right person who needs it, who really wants it, who can do it, and if we can't do that, telling the client, sorry, we can't help you, that drives customer service to an extreme degree. Now, we also have a direct system which looks at how the, the work is provided. And, and, and the response to it. We, we register complaints. Now, a complaint is 
customer saying to the call centre, or sometimes on, uh, with an email, we are not happy with some aspect of the service. There are some times that customers aren't happy which could not be complaints. We would not consider complaints on the basis. For example, if a customer rang at 9 o'clock to get a service done, and at 5 to 11 they ring back to say, why hasn't he turned up? Is that a complaint? Would that be a complaint? No, because it's within the two hours. Now, it might be unwise of the franchisee to wait so long. They should have contacted the client much quicker. But at 5 to 11, it's still not a complaint. At five minutes past 11, it's a complaint. What's another unhappy customer who we would not consider a complaint from what I've told you this morning so far? Overcharging. Okay. The customer says, you know, I'm used to having my whatever done for 50 bucks and your guys charge 200. Now that is a very, very, very high price and probably unwise to be so much above the going rate. But in our terms, not a complaint because any time a customer dissatisfaction comes down to price, we do not consider it a complaint, no matter how high the price is. Okay, so there are certain things that could not be complaints. But otherwise than that, there's no discretion in this. The girl will take a complaint if the customer is unhappy. It may be unfair, sometimes it is. If you can prove that the complaint is wrong, if there is evidence that is wrong, you send it to me directly, jim at jims.net. I'll give you that email again. Um, if not, you can task the call center and they'll, they'll give you it. So put it through to me if you can prove it's wrong. For example, if the customer says you didn't call back, what do I need to see? Text message. text message. Phone call and text message within the two hours. If you do that, I'll wipe it off. If they said there's no quote, I need to see evidence that you followed up the quote. Text message, phone call for some period of time, follow up the So show me the evidence and I'll take it off. Um, Sometimes the franchisor will actually, if the, 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 the customer may say this is terrible, the franchisee, franchisor then follows up with the client and says, you know, just, just checking why the job was so why we, you thought the service was so terrible. Oh, I said he overcharged me. It was just a ridiculous price. Aha, not a complaint. Price, okay, quite different. So there are ways of taking complaints off. I actually personally delete several complaints a day when somebody shows me the evidence because we want to be fair. Unfortunately, though, that if you don't have the evidence, it's a complaint and it just stays on the books. The other source of complaints now, which is actually the biggest source of complaints these days, coming out of surveys. We regularly survey our clients by text, um, by email, if they don't have a mobile phone, some 30% now respond, which is pretty high, actually. It's, it's made very, very simple. They can just tap one number, you know, five, one, two, whatever, or P for price or whatever. So it's really, really simple for the, for the client to put in their reaction to the, um, to the service. If the comment indicates, not just the star rating alone, but the comment indicates some serious issue with the service, that will be treated as a complaint. If they say that you were rude, if you say the job was poor, that you didn't ring back, that you didn't give a quote, whatever reason, if that's in there, there's some reason, can treat as a complaint. That's treated the same way as a normal complaint. If there's evidence that you did the right thing, well, I'll wipe it. Otherwise, that stays on the system. 
Your franchisor can actually class the, the complaint not at fault if they wish, if they think you've got a reasonable story. That doesn't delete it, it's just a way of softening the blow. Um, look, these things hurt, and sometimes they're not fair, really. You will sometimes get a complaint that is really objectively unfair, it's a complete story were known, but you just can't prove it. You have to wear that, unfortunately, it's just part of the strength of the system. But if we knock off complaints because the franchisee objects, because they think it's unreasonable, in the end you don't have complaints, and then you don't have customer service. And as I say to franchisees when they complain about this, and I have this again, this conversation frequently, particularly by email, if I did what I, you want me to do, you would feel better, and many other franchisees would feel better. But down the track, hundreds of franchises would fail because the customer service went down and the leads went down and they would feel a lot worse than this. So that's why we do it. And as we've become more rigorous with customer service, the um, qualities improve. Now, the, the meaning of complaints matters a great deal to who you are. If you're a very good operator, most of you will be pretty good. I'm just talking statistically. You're not going to get very many. Some franchisees never get complaints. Some might get one in every year or so or something like that. We really don't mind that. I know it hurts, it's a sting, and you don't want it to happen. And if you can prove that it's not there, you'll want to take it off. But on the whole, it really doesn't matter. We know you're a good operator. But if you get a pattern of ongoing complaints, particularly about the same kinds of issues, then certain sanctions will apply. We have a system called 666, which is six complaints or poor surveys within six months and at least 6% of leads received. Now, if you hit that, a letter first goes to your franchisor who has the opportunity to object, and there are reasons why they may object to it, and sometimes I'll listen to them. Otherwise, you will get a warning letter. Now, this letter doesn't mean anything by itself. It doesn't affect your work or any other way. It's just a bit of a shock. And, and, and commonly, when people get these letters, they get it taken aback and they actually look at what they're doing. And, and after six months, we forget about it. We don't look back more than six months with complaints. So if you have a clean six months, your record is wiped clean. We don't, we don't look to the past. However, if within the next six months, you get the same pattern arising, six complaints, at least 6% of total leads, you get a second letter. This is really serious. This is a breach notice. And this is, an, this is a request that you attend customer service retraining, which will take about half a day and cost you up to 250 bucks, depending on the number of people who attend at any one time. And you don't get any jobs when you do this. And then when you are back on the system, every single complaint is sent direct to me personally and I will check it out. And if you continue to get complaints, you will be terminated. This doesn't happen a lot. Obviously to us it's a sign of failure when that happens. We don't like to do this kind of stuff, but it does happen. And the other thing that's coming on, this is, this is just coming up new, but down the track a bit, we'll also be looking at your star ratings. Most franchisees quote do pretty well, like 4.6 and above is, is, is not uncommon. I think about half of our franchises are at that level. Um, if you go below that level consistently, there will be a certain bias towards giving the better franchisees, which is 4.6 and above, priority in terms of leads. 
So there are some fairly serious sanctions if your customer service is poor. Now, star ratings aren't forever. If you have a, if you have a, a bit of a poor rating, um, and, then you, and then you go good, at a certain stage we'll say that you can wipe out the, the past. Because in the past year you've been great, we're not going to remember the past forever. So it's an opportunity to improve in everything we do. Well, if, if you go back and fix the customer, then, and, and the customer is happy, so all you need, what you need is an email from the customer to say, I'm now completely satisfied. If you send that to me, I'll then delete the rating or whatever it is. Well, it depends on the customer, <laughs> really. So you don't but, track the well, we, no, we can't. We can't track it. We know a lot of our customers are people who use multiple services, and and a, and a huge source of people coming to us is because they've had experience with us or know about us from somebody else. So we know it has an impact. But basically, the, the rule is to satisfy the customer, and and if you do that, it's fine. So that's basically the customer service system, and it's very very tough. I really don't make any bones about that. And some of you, most of you will do pretty well, and most of our franchisees do get pretty good service, increasingly so with time. Um, some will have some issues. I hope, I hope as few as possible of you will have those kinds of issues. But it matters a great deal. Now, from what I've said over the past hour and a quarter, you're probably starting to get a bit of a hint that we take customer service seriously. Is that, is that true? Is everybody here Convinced of that, or is anybody not? Because I can talk for another hour and a half if you prefer. All right, okay, we're convinced of that. Would it surprise you then if I said the customer service is not our number one priority? And if you talk about franchisees meeting together to discuss issues, there is some, there's one topic that comes up a lot more often than customer service. Anybody know what that is? There's one thing, one thing only that we spend more time thinking about, planning about, developing IT systems for. Franchisee success. Franchisee success, that is exactly right. And as this book says, you'll actually open it up in the front, you'll see a little tripartite of values. Our first priority is the welfare of our franchisees. We are also passionate about customer service. We sign only franchisees and franchisors we are convinced will succeed. I'll also, if you get an email from me, which you will, all of you will get one after one month. That's at the bottom of my email, that, that, little, that little three. That, that's, that's our core values. But our first priority is franchisees, not customers. Now, these are not in opposition. When we look after customers, we look after customers. Why? Because looking after customers is the best way to get the work flowing in for you individually and as a company and to keep you happy and successful. They're not opposites, they're the same thing, but our first priority is the welfare of franchisees. So what I want to go through now is to look at what we do to make you successful. What are the things that we do as an organisation to make you successful? Anybody like to know the single probably most important thing that will drive your success that we could do? Training and have the right attitude. Training is very important. But attitude actually comes first, because what that, what that applies to is selection. 
we choose good right from the beginning one decision I made which was a very good decision I have to say in retrospect was that I was only going to get people that I was convinced were going to be successful now I'm not always right sometimes I make mistakes but if I had doubts about somebody I would say no and when I train franchisors the first session I give to the franchisors which is the first hour and a half is talking about selection and why it's so important to choose good people because fundamentally if you're good people and you've got a great attitude with the kind of support we can give you, you are going to succeed, overwhelmingly likely to succeed. So good people, choosing good people is number one. Number two, as you quite rightly say, training. Very, very important. We can actually measure the success of this course. You know that? What you do here we can measure and we're very much into measuring things at gyms. So, for example, a very good measure of our success is what we call attrition rate. And the attrition rate is the likelihood that you will still be here in a year time. That's your first year attrition rate. Attrition rate overall is for franchises as a whole. But first year attrition rate is a very good test of training. Now for many years, our attrition rate in our first year was around about 17%. Now that sounds Actually, that's actually fairly good because if you look up statistics, look it up on the, on the internet, the attrition, the failure rate of small businesses, service businesses, and it's something, anything between 60 and 95%, depending on what, what um, source you use. There's a cleaning and janitorial company in America that reckons about 60% of clean businesses fail in their first year. Other estimates for mine business is about 95%. So it depends on what you do. So independent businesses, most of them fail very quickly. In a franchise, you'd expect to do better, wouldn't you? But traditionally speaking, we were losing about one in six, 17%, fairly consistently year to year. We then launched the first trial of this particular program. In those days, almost all mowing. It was a three-day generic course, three-day divisional course. And as soon, we, we very eagerly looked at the attrition rate ongoing. And immediately we did it, the first year we did it, our attrition rate dropped to 10.5%. It's been around 10% ever since. So every, every session we give you in this particular, in this course, has the one aim to say, what can we do to increase your chance of not being in that 10%? So training is very important. And the things I'm telling you about this morning, customer service, so forth, it all relates to that. I know that if you give great customer service, you might be successful. You might be successful if you also do business plans and you, and you understand how the system works and all the things we're going to teach you how to do. So training, very, very important. Obviously, if I asked you why you're here, rather than going out as an independence, one of the things I'm sure everybody here would tell you, it's about work, isn't it? And going, starting as an independent is very difficult because you don't have any certainty of where the work's coming from. A very good friend of mine in my Bible study group actually is an electrician, tried to start his own electrical business and he's a really good guy. I mean, I'm sure he has what it takes to be successful, but he just couldn't last that difficult, tough early stages. Well, in all due modesty, we're pretty good at getting you going. We tend to have a lot of leads depending on the division. Sometimes we've got masses of them, like fencing, for example, handyman, mowing, usually pretty good. <coughs> Others are a bit more of a struggle, but we do provide you with work. We also have a system called Pay for Work Guarantee, which I'll discuss more on Wednesday afternoon.
But what it means is that if you make less than a certain amount of money, which is a lot less than most of you will be making long term, it's usually even about $1,000, $1,500 per week. If you make less than that, you can actually go and offer free promotional services. The reason we do that is only partly because it props up your income, though it does if you do it correctly. The most important reason is it's a very efficient, fast way to build your business. And if you do that effectively, you're very unlikely to need it for very long because, because you'll pick up so many referrals and repeats and upsells and all kinds of things will come in. If you do great service, if you did poor service, there's no guarantee, okay? But that's, but that's what paperwork guarantee is. So we provide you with leads, and we also provide you with this system called pay for work guarantee, which means if you don't get enough leads, you can go out and build the business and be paid for doing that. In some cases, doing freebies, in some, just doing promotional activities, handing out business cards and stuff. We also have a, a buying group where we work to give you discounts on anything that you can buy. Um, there's a deal with Bunnings, for example. You get a trade discount, you get an extra gyms discount on certain, certain things. And it's worth quite a lot of money. If you want to buy a new car, for example, for heaven's sake, check it out. Because you can buy it effectively as a fleet owner in, in just about all the cars you want to buy. In other words, you're going out as if you had 12 vehicles in your fleet and you can negotiate with the suppliers. Well, we've got thousands of vehicles in our fleets, so we use our buying power to get you a better deal. This is going to be very major, some of these. There's also other particular deals to divisions. I don't have anybody here from painting, but we have a, um, we have a deal with Torbman's where we get 35% off paint, which is an incredible deal. And, and not only that, but they wanted to give us an extra 10%, but because we, and they said it has to come to you, and because we have a policy of not taking it in-house, we've actually had to give back to the franchisees as credits. There are some franchisees who simply don't pay fees in painting because their credits for the paint is so big, even that 10%, that they just don't pay anything. So some of these discounts can be good. If you have a look online, through Jim's Online, you'll actually see a supplier's list, and it's got all those offers in there. So watch for that. But it, won't, it won't justify your fees alone, but it's still quite nice to have. On top of this, we have service offered by your franchisor directly. Now, We've learned a lot about franchising over the years. When I started off, which is 30 years ago, and in fact, my first franchisee would have been signed in June 1989. So our 30-year anniversary is coming up next month, very shortly. Um, I really didn't know what I was doing. One of the things I was going to do, I was going to be the franchisor for the, everybody. I was going to be the franchisor, and I was going to have franchisees. But bearing in mind, at that stage, I didn't have a really... I wasn't optimistic about how well this little new venture would do. Somebody asked me at the beginning, they said, if it's really successful, how many franchisees do you think you might have one day? And I said, look, I don't know if it's going to work, but honestly, one day, you might have 100. Okay? By the end of the first year, I had 60. I thought, what is this thing? So, but anyway, I, I, I was going to be the franchisor. I was going to have franchisees. And then I, what I discovered was that the franchisees that were near me in these suburbs did pretty well, but the further away they got, the less well they seemed to do until the first interstate franchisees. I have to, I'm very ashamed to say most of them failed. And, and I, don't know, I was giving them work and we were talking to them on the phone, giving them advice and stuff, but there was this personal element that was lacking. So what we did is put in regional franchisors 
originally for um, interstate and then in other areas of Melbourne. And we found that that was far more effective. Now, franchisors have certain roles. In Jim's group, the way our system works is they control the advertising. We fill the franchisors are those most interested in the, the welfare of the franchisees, which can lead to very strange situations that you can have a franchisor in one division who's got, got, got to dig deeper into their pockets to put more money into advertising. In the same area, you have a franchisor in a different division where they can't spend the advertising, so they actually have to give it back to the franchisees, which happens more and more in recent times. But we don't, we don't cross-subsidise. You don't take service money from one division and give it to someone else. Because um, one of our competitors, VIP, did that in the early days. Like, they took money from the mowing guys, advertising to put it into cleaning, which they thought was pretty clever, but the mowing guys didn't agree. They thought it was a pretty bad idea. They said, it's our money to get us work. What are you giving it to somebody else for? So we don't do that. We, the franchisors control advertising. But franchisors also have other very, very important roles. One of them is that franchisors run meetings. Now, when you're, when you're coming into a franchise system, you're probably thinking that you know, work would be good to have and training would be good to have. What you probably don't recognise is that meetings are an incredibly important part of your business. And we've discovered this from experience. We know that franchisees that don't have access to meetings tend to do a lot worse than those that do. We've actually measured the effectiveness of meetings and how often they need to be had. And the ideal meeting um, distance is once every six weeks. That's pretty bizarre, isn't it? Why not once every month or every quarter or whatever? No, every six weeks. And we do that by simply observing the effects. And we notice that if there's no meetings, the franchisees are much less happy. If there's some meetings, they're more happy. Once every six weeks, they're, they're more happy still. But more often than that, it doesn't improve it. So that, that's, that's the sweet spot, but about eight meetings a year. So fr franchisors are obliged to have eight meetings a year. Meetings are actually the most important time you will spend in your business all year. It's more important than quoting. It's more important than doing the job itself in terms of potential to improve your income. Why do you think meetings matter so much? More information. It's a chance to keep on learning and growing. One of, the, one of the visions we have for you, and not everybody here will buy it, but one of the visions we have for you is that being in business is a continuous learning experience. In other words, we don't want you simply to learn the trade and get to a stage and then stop there. Now, if you want to do that, that's fine. We're not going to say no to you. If you look after customers and stuff, if you're only content to make the same income from the same hours by doing the jo same jobs in the same way forever, we'll, we'll, we'll accept that. But it's not our goal for you. Our goal is for your business to keep on improving and improving and improving and growing. And again, if you look at my own career as an example, it's not that I'm a particularly brilliant business owner. I have made so many stupid mistakes over the years I mean, you'll there's many of them in that book and there's more that I didn't even talk about. So many dumb mistakes. So many things I didn't understand when I started out. So many things I look back and I said, why on earth could you do such a stupid thing? Like the underpricing thing I told you about. And the fact that I didn't look after my mowers and there's just so many dumb things that I've done. But one thing I've always done, 
every day of my working life, from back in those days when I was pushing a lawnmower around as a student, to right now today, with nearly 4,000 franchisees, is every day I ask myself the question, how can I do it better? And Jim's is not the result of huge ideas, oh, I'll franchise and suddenly I'm a It doesn't work that way. It's the little, tiny, everyday improvements that you can do. And meetings are the best place to learn this because you'll go to a meeting and you'll talk to somebody who has been successful and they're doing things and it's taking you... Um, so what job, what business are you in? Bathrooms. Ba oh, batteries, sorry. Okay, that's probably not a good example because I don't know how that works. But if you talk about something like mowing, and you, and you recognise it's taking you 40 minutes to mow an atypical lawn and there's somebody there doing it in half an hour. So what are you doing differently? How do you do it? How do you lift your grass? How do I clean a window the most efficient way? How do I wash a dog? There are always ways you can learn. How can I cut travel between jobs? How can I improve my pricing? How can I upsell more effectively? There are, there are hundreds and hundreds of little details and people will be eager to tell you what they're doing. So there's what you learn at the meeting itself and there's also what you learn sort of informally from other franchises, which is probably the most value. I really urge you to go to these meetings. Take an absolute resolution that you will do what's necessary to make that business grow in that way. I remember one franchisor telling me about, um, had some franchisees in his region that were, they weren't upselling effectively. Upselling is a very major skill. It's going in for one job, and offering more services. And it's a big, big clue to, to increased income. So he knew these guys weren't doing this effectively, so he thought, I'm going to run a meeting on upselling because these guys really need this. Now, because he didn't want to be talking himself all the time, what he did is he said he had three franchisees in his region who were fantastic at upselling. upselling. Now, I, don't, I forget their names, but I'm going to call them Tom, Dick and Harry. So he, he thought, I will get one of these guys to get up. Now, how do you choose? They're all brilliant. They're all great at it. But there was no reason. They're all as good. Pick Tom. Okay? In with the meeting comes, Tom give, gets up and gives this amazing talk about upselling. He talks about why it's so important. He talks about how to do it, how to say things to clients, how to approach them, the kinds of jobs that you can do the benefits, the income, the whole thing. It was a great talk. He said it was fantastic talk. Because he wasn't giving the talk, he was looking around the room at who was present at that meeting. And he's looking particularly for those guys who were having real struggles with upselling. And you know what? They weren't there. But what he said really struck him. Sitting down in the front row, listening to every word, was Dick and Harry, the two guys who could have given the talk. So why is it that the people who, who needed the talk weren't there and the people who could have given the talk were there listening so carefully? It's because it's a difference in attitude. These guys were good because they're the kind of people who were always wanting to learn more and these other people were not doing so well because they weren't willing to listen and learn. And that is so characteristic. <coughs> Best operators are not, let me tell you, they're not the ones with sky-high IQs and you know, massive degrees and all this kind of stuff. They are not. I don't even notice the difference in that. The people who do well tend to be those who look at what they're doing and say, how can I do this better? You don't have to be brilliant. You don't even have to be a workaholic. You just have to be willing to be flexible. And meetings are a fantastic way to learn. And it's a great 
it's a great advantage of being in a system like ours. I remember in pre-franchise days, I went to an evangelical conference once, and there was a guy there who was also in the mowing business. And of course, we're you know, like fellow Christians and stuff, and we got on pretty well. We were just talking for hours about the business, and it was wonderful to be able to share information and ideas with somebody in the business. When you have this privilege of being part of an organisation, you will not see each other as competitors. We're all on the same side. That's how they'll see it. The best people will love to help you. And the better they are, the more want they want to share with you. So come to meetings. There is another benefit to meetings too. Do you know what that is? There's something I didn't realise in the slightest in the beginning. We came to understand it's very, very important with time. What is the other reason for coming to meetings? Yes, you will develop contacts that you can then use in other contexts. So you come to a meeting and you'll get to know somebody and then you'll have a problem and you'll ring them up and say, oh, Fred, how do I do this? And they'll tell you, Fred will tell you. But there's one other reason which is really, really important, something I was completely ignorant about. Didn't even cross my mind in the beginning. Friendship. Friendship. Community. Sense of belonging, sense of being part of something. Having encouragement and support from other people. Now. I don't want to be negative in this talk. And I, I reckon being in business for yourself is wonderful. I really, really, really love being in business for myself. From a personal point of view, I've grown up seeing my kids in a way that most working fathers in my condition couldn't possibly imagine. You know, I drive my kids to school, not this morning because I had to come to this talk, but usually I do. I pick them up, I see my kids, I can sometimes have lunch in the middle of the day with them, I have a great flexibility of lifestyle. Now, I'll take emails at all times of the day and night and the weekends and all kinds of things. And if you email me, you'll find that I respond at odd times, which gives you the impression I'm a workaholic. It's, I'm not really. I'm just very, very flexible. So being in business has that kind of advantage. You have this enormous sense of flexibility. It's sense of freedom, sense of opportunity, sense of being able to make your own future. It's a fantastic benefit of being in business for yourself. However, at times it can be discouraging, it can be tough, it can be difficult in a way that a normal job isn't. Because of the fact is you can make great money, but you can have terrible weeks too. And you can be very discouraged, you can lose your best clients, you can have a big problem with a job you had to fix up, there's all kinds of things that can go wrong. You can have machinery breakdown, you can have vehicle breakdown, there's things that can be very discouraging. On the whole, it's a great business, to be in business for yourself, and the great majority of our franchisees love it, but it can also be challenging emotionally. The, the, having the support of a peer group is very, very important part of the value that we offer. And it's actually a surprising thing. In the beginning, one thing I couldn't really understand is why people should stay in a system once they had enough jobs. And so once you've got regular clients, why would you need us? Now we've made it relatively easy for people to go independent. Unlike most systems, the most you'll pay four grand, you can go and take your clients with you. The surprising thing, striking thing is that how rare that actually happens. It does happen at times, but it's very, very unusual. And a lot of that is because the sense of community is very important and very valuable ongoing. So there's that, that benefit as well. Now, on top of meetings, your franchisor also is the person who takes your inquiries. They have to respond within 24 hours business days. From our service, they, we know that they actually do mostly far better than that. Um, and also, we ask them to actually pick up the phone and ring you 
pretty regularly, ideally weekly, at least monthly, especially in the beginning, how are you getting on? Try and keep contact with you most definitely. So that's what, that's what service to franchisees is all about. Now, again, when I talked about customer service, I talked about what customer service is, then I talked about the mechanisms that make it happen. So now I'm going to talk about, I've talked about what we offer to you as franchisees, but now I'm going to talk about what puts you in position as far as we could possible to make sure that you are given the greatest surveys in the world. Now, if anybody's read the newspapers or listened to the news lately, you will know there's been a lot of controversies about franchising. Have you seen this stuff? Retail Food Group is a prime example. And some of the stories behind that are absolutely horrifying. There are people who are just ripped off blind, they're treated badly. People are going broke, they're losing their homes. There's just awful, awful things going on. I'm actually in the process of working on a book which will expose some of the problems in the industry and why government regulations are so feeble. So there are really, really bad things going on in the franchising industry. And it is inherently, potentially, a business with a great difference in power. So, for example, to pick one example, you have um, Pizza Hut being franchisees being forced to sell franchise um, pizzas at 4.95, where they lose money on every pizza. You know that? Well, they've got to pay double for supplies, but they can get them from from Coles. So there's some real bad things potentially in the industry. Now, what we've done in gyms is we've set things up in such a way as we have given our franchisees maximum protection. In fact, reason, one of the reasons it took me nine months to get the franchise going, because I spent nine months arguing with lawyers about trying to put protections into the system. Let me, let me talk about some of the things that are in our contract that actually protect you. We, um, you have a territory right, which is an absolute right of first refusal for any job that comes into your territory um, by contract. We cannot give it to anybody else if you want it. The only exception being that you've just had a breach notice and you haven't done a retraining, but apart from that, we must give you jobs in territory. However, you are not governed by that. You can actually pick up from personal referrals jobs anywhere you like. The only thing that you cannot do is you can't door knock somebody else's territory, and nor can you advertise in a way that you could breach somebody's territory rights under gyms. Okay? And, but by the way, that, that thing about door knocking franchises' territories was actually asked for by the franchisees. I didn't put it in, they asked me to put it in because they, didn't, they wanted that protection from themselves. <laughs> okay, so you can grow your business as big as you wish. You can employ as many people as you wish. We don't charge you if you want to put an extra trailer or an extra vehicle on the road. So you can. Yeah, you can grow your business as big as you wish. Your base fees are the same. You may pay slightly more lead fees because you take more work, but your base fees are the same. So you're not limited in any way. Your customers belong to you. We cannot take them off you without your consent unless the customer complains. So in other words, if you've got a few customers, say, in a regular customers in an area, if a new franchisee moves on, now we can buy them off you if, if you want to sell them at the price that you want to sell them at, but we cannot go and take them and give you whatever money we think is fair not allowed under our system. We cannot do, we cannot take commissions on things. We do not act as a supplier. The one exception is, is public risk insurance. 
And that's because it's the only way we can know that everybody is insured, but we do not act as a supplier in humans, which causes problems in many systems at all. Now, all these, all these things were built into our initial system. The lawyers said, you're going to change this because this is, this is too franchisee friendly. This is too much. You're giving too much power. They say you're being too nice. And I argued with them. I said, no, we're not. I want a system that I want to join if I was a prospective franchisee. They still said, you're going, to, you're going to give yourself more power with time. We actually did the absolute opposite with time. One of the things we did is we put in a clause that says you can change your territory to anywhere else in the same region. So in other words, as long as it's not a bigger territory. So if you want to move your territory just from there to there, if it's vacant, you have an absolute right to do that. Your franchisor cannot stop you. This actually came up last week. There was one franchisee in one division had a very large territory and they wanted to move to a different area and the franchisor was, was wanting to give them a smaller territory in that area because the first one was so large and I said, you can't do that. They can have a territory the same size as the one they've actually moved from. So this is quite a real defence. Another one, this is a lot more crucial, you can actually change to a different region or even a different division if the other franchisor will accept you. Now there could be all kinds of reasons for that. One reason is that you might move house. So you move from one another, so then it's obvious you want to change to the other region. There might also be you're near the boundary and you think there's more work over this side, that's fine. You can change that too. Most important reason of all though is if you don't think your franchisor is giving you the best possible support. And this actually, again, came up last week. We had one particular franchisee who is not happy with the support given by their franchisor. I think the franchisor overall is pretty good, but they're not happy with them. They want to change to a different franchisor. The first franchisor objected. I said, they shouldn't do this. And I said, it's not your choice. It's their choice. If they want to move, they can, as long as the other franchisor will accept them, which they almost always will, by the way, unless you've got a really bad record of some kind. You don't pay your fees or terrible customer service, they'll almost always accept you. Now this is incredibly important because it, what it means is that you need to be treated like clients, not like employees. You're in a very different relationship because you, you're the client with a service provider and if you're not happy with a job that's being done by a service provider, what can you do? You can change service provider, can't you? You can get somebody else to do the cleaning, the gardening, the handyman, the fencing, whatever it is. You can change suppliers. Well, in any other franchise system in the world, that's not possible. But in gyms, it is. So if you're not getting the support you want from your own franchise or you can change to somebody else, what that actually does in practice is put a lot of pressure on franchisors to do the right thing and to make sure that they look after franchisees well because they can't take you for granted. It gives you power in a way that no other franchise system does. And actually, in fact, when you get a franchisor who's not doing a great job, and that's relatively rare, I might say. We've had 350-odd oh, franchisors. I think last year about six got breaches for, for poor service in one way or another. So it's not very common. But if your franchisor is not giving you the, the, the support that you believe you should be getting, you can change to somebody else. So your franchisor has every incentive to want to keep you because they want the ongoing fees and so forth. And the other thing is even more radical, and this came in 
also much later. We give our franchisees the right to vote out their franchisors. This is the only system in the world where franchisees can actually determine who their franchisor is. Now that applies at every level of the organisation. Franchisees can vote out franchisors, franchisors can vote out divisional franchisors. And this applies to everybody. It applies to me too, by the way. We took over the computer services division a few years back. It wasn't, in our view, very well run. Um, the franchisees weren't happy with us. Now that's unusual. Most people in the divisions we run are, are pretty happy. We managed to give them good support. In this case, they weren't. They basically said to us, we don't want you doing this. We want you to find somebody from within the industry to focus on it. We've just done that. They took over a few months back. And by the way, we lost money in exchange. We actually got a lot less for the division than we paid for it. I'm actually getting, putting a proposal up tomorrow to the committee too that will make it possible in the long run for franchisees and franchisors to vote the national franchisor out, meaning me. Now, I don't do that because I think it'll happen to me, but because I don't want, after I'm gone, to have a situation where somebody can come along and do to my franchisees what our retail food groups done to their people. Same sort of idea. Basically speaking, we live to serve you. That's, that's our role. You are the clients, we are the service provider. And the contracts are set up in a way which is very radical to make sure that you have that level of power that no other franchise system in the world will give you. And like I said, it's not because most franchisors do a poor job. They don't. They do a very good job. And, and most franchisors genuinely care. We actually had um, a guy called Brian Duckett come out some years back to our national conference, which was held in Queensland that year. And he'd been in the franchising industry for decades. He'd known all kinds of franchise systems. And he said he'd never seen anything like the gym system. This is the franchisors meeting. Because he said the, 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 the culture there was one of, of incredibly strong concern to look after franchisees. It was different to anything he'd ever seen, which I was, I was very proud of that. That was great, because that reflects my attitude. Now, to make all these things very concrete and real, the, the vote out's there, the, the right to move regions is there, the protections in the contract are there, and, and, and there's, there's more than I've talked about, actually, but there's a lot of stuff in the contract about that. I'd recommend you read the contract, by the way. It's not that complicated. We deliberately put it in fairly simple English so that you can understand it. We also, when we, you know, we survey our, I told you we survey our clients. We also survey our franchisees. Now, you're not going to get this because the survey is going out right now. But once a year, we send out confidential surveys to our franchisees asking them just a few questions. Um, how often does your franchise will ring you? How quickly do they get back to you? And there's, there's you know, answers like um, weekly, monthly, lace, this kind of thing. And um, how helpful are they? Very helpful, somewhat helpful, not helpful. There's a, few qu there's a question about how many meetings you've had. And there's a question about how you rate your income. So it's a really simple thing. You can answer it in, in like a minute. And we, and we actually, I'll be honest, we badger our franchisees to do it. We'll actually email you, we'll follow up, email you again, and then we'll ring you. And we, and we don't rest until we've got at least 90% of franchisees respond, because this is really, really important stuff. The 
answers that you give, the ratings that you give, are not shown to the franchisor. The only thing the franchisor will see is any comments that you like to make. You don't have to make comments, most people don't. If you make a comment in a way that's clear who you are, the franchisor will see that. But apart from that, it's completely anonymous. The franchisor will see the aggregate results, they won't know the individuals. And we do that because it has to be completely fear free of any fear that the franchisor might get annoyed at you, retaliate in some way. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's confidential. This is actually an incredibly important part of our system now. It's been going for about the last 10 years. And what we've actually seen is that over the years, the levels of service and to franchisees has risen dramatically and we can measure that. And, the, and these matter a great deal because this, the only way we award franchisors in the gym system is not based on how much profit they make for it, it's anything like that. The one thing we make awards for is how they're rated by their franchisees. And we have awards which are gold, platinum and diamond. Now, a few years ago there was no such thing as diamond. <coughs> These days diamond is really fast growing category. Something like um, 60 franchisors rated at the diamond level, which is really, we, we didn't even think it was almost possible in the past. But the service has gone up so much. To be diamond, you really have to be, to be pretty well bringing most of your franchise, virtually all your franchises weekly, getting back to them instantaneously, and being seen as very helpful. It's not an easy thing to get. But, but more and more franchises like that. Now, the franchisees, franchisors who don't do well, get the opposite, they get a breach notice. So it's, it's, it's a lot of pressure on franchisors to do the right thing, as judged by you. And this is purely subjective. It doesn't have to be fair. It doesn't have to be accurate. The only thing is that if you say there's no meetings, we'll actually check when was the meeting held, where was it held. We can actually do an audit on it. But apart from that, that puts a lot of pressure on franchisors to do better. So compared with any system anywhere in the world, the whole idea of power, not a powerful franchisor controlling franchisees, is turned on its head. It puts franchisees into a very, very powerful situation. Um, one of the problems we actually have is that franchisees can be, franchisors can be a little bit intimidated because franchisors are supposed to be there as your coaches helping you to do better and sometimes franchisors can be too scared to say the truth and that's the problem because they should be helping you to do better. If you've got a problem they should be able to coach you and the best ones will do that too. Now there's all these systems of operation designed to make sure that you get very good support. There's also a role at national office. There's somebody at national office who has a, a key function which is to listen directly to any concerns, any issues, any problems that you might have. So immediately we find out if there's issues, anything going on. That person is myself. That is one of my key roles in Jim's group. I take a very big role in customer service and I take a very key role in looking after franchisees. Often franchisees do feel very timid about approaching me, like they think I'm very busy. Honestly, honestly and I tell you this very seriously, there is nothing more important in my whole life, my working life, than being available to listen to any concerns that you have. Because I can do a lot of things that nobody else can do, which is why it's important that I do it. I understand the contract extremely well. I basically wrote it. I wrote the manuals. I understand how it works. 
I can give you advice on all kinds of things. Now, most of the time, if you've got a problem with your franchisor, I'll tell you your franchisor is right, because usually they are. But sometimes they're not. Sometimes they, 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 they make mistakes too. Um, or they're trying to do something which is not right, and I will step in there, and I will help you out with that. It's also incredibly useful too, because most of the changes that are made in gyms over the years were driven from the ground up for franchisees. Actually, it's very rarely that a month would go by. We don't change something in the system based on something that a franchisee comes up with. Some objection, some idea, some complaint, some concern. And I take them very seriously. I won't even go into it, but I mean, just as a trivial example, one franchisee actually was complaining to me about the way that work was distributed, that new franchisees were getting more than their fair share. And we actually looked at it, I looked at it and I said, you're basically, you're right. And I went to the IT system and I said, how can we change this? And we got a proposal, went to the franchisors, tried in Victoria, put it across the rest of the country. The, the, all the, the whole of the way that this system works is now driven by what that one franchisee said. I can give you hundreds of other examples of the similar kind of things that happen. So please don't be afraid to contact me about anything and everything. I'm going to try and get around and talk to most of you during these next few days, um, having lunch, dinner tonight, lunches, different times. And that reason I do that is because I, I think if you spoke to me direct, you're more likely to contact me. And it's very important that you do. Do not feel I'm too busy. Okay, that's basically it for me. I hope you have a great course. Hope to meet as many of you as possible over the next few days. Take my number down, don't forget it. I'll speak to you on Wednesday. Thank you for listening to that episode of the Gyms Cast on the Gyms Network. If you want to see more of this type of content, make sure you let us know by following at the Jim Penman on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and also all the Gyms Group stuff and the various platforms. Also head to the Gyms Group YouTube channel and give us a subscribe. There's some great content there. Leave us some comments or questions about what you maybe want us to do on the show next, and we'll try and do that. Also head to gyms.net and you can learn more about Jim there. We hope to see you next time.